0: he's a cocky guy and just to see the indignity of being tossed in in jail you're handing your suit jacket and you're tied to your lawyer and being you know cuffed in front of 100 you know court staff and security and sketch artists it's it's a reminder very vividly of just how far he's fallen
1: welcome to the powers that be daily pucks podcast focused on the intersection of wall street washington silicon valley and hollywood and the players who run it all i'm peter hamby It's Wednesday, August 16th. Today, I'm joined by Teddy Schleifer, who was in the courtroom a few days ago in Manhattan when a judge ordered Sam Bankman Freed, the disgraced crypto mogul, to jail. Teddy has dramatic color from inside the courtroom, and he lays out the legal state of play ahead of SBF's trial, which is set to begin in October. And later, Julia Alexander and Ben discuss Disney's franchise fatigue and Bob Iger's plan to fix the streaming business. We'll discuss all that and much, much more on today's episode of Powers That Be. Happy Wednesday, everybody. Welcome to The Powers That Be. I hope your week is going well. I can guarantee you, if you're having a bad week, you're not having as bad a week as Sam Bankman-Fried, who is now in jail. Our Teddy Schleifer was in the courtroom last week when the judge sent SBF off to jail. They took off his nice little sport coat, put him in handcuffs, and led him away. Teddy, what was that scene like?
0: It was surreal, Peter. Um, This is somebody who who I know uh, pretty well. And he's always felt, you know, he's a cocky guy. And just to see the indignity of, you know, being tossed in, in jail you're handing your suit jacket and you're tied to your lawyer and being you know cuffed in front of 50 to 100 you know court staff and security and sketch artists it, it's surreal and it really made the fall from grace feel much less academic like you know if if you're even under house arrest which is what sam mcfrey has been for the last nine months you know you sort of have your creature comforts and, and you know you, you you can blink and forget that you're not just talking to a guy who's you know had a bad couple of weeks and you know his company went under and Uh, woe is him like when you when you see the cuffs come on and you know him taking you know off his tie and undoing his shoelaces it's a reminder very vividly of just how far he's fallen so um i'm glad i went to new york last friday to see the uh you know incarceration of this guy under very peculiar circumstances the reasons here are fascinating you know he was under house arrest for since since december of last year but because of the way he acted on bail the judge felt that he was a guy who could not be trusted, left to his own devices.
1: So for our listeners then on that point, why specifically was this prompted? Like why did the judge summon him to a hearing and then send him away until the trial? Because it had to do with a lot of his behavior while he was on house arrest.
0: Right, so this is a guy who likes to talk to press. Um, this is a guy who likes to work the press. And ultimately, you know, you live by the press, you die by the press. Mm-hmm. So Sam Beckman freed last month as part of his, you know, ongoing media cultivation tour, leaked private writings or, or internal documents that were circulated to people involved in the case, I believe as part of the discovery process mm-hmm. and ahead of the October trial. He leaked the private writings of Carolyn Ellison, who is sort of the star witness for the prosecution, in which Carolyn kind of waxes about her her life at Alameda and, you know, talks a little bit about her tension with Sam. He leaked these to New York Times, and Sam... Was accused by prosecutors, and a judge agreed that this amounted to witness intimidation. That the act of the leak, which Sam eventually admitted to, was not uh, allowed by his bail conditions, uh, or frankly, is not really allowed by anybody who is, you know, accused of a crime. Like, there are definitely some similarities, Peter, to like the Trump investigation uh, mm. on Jan 6, where, you know, prosecutors are alleging that. Trump is intimidating witnesses with his Truth Social posts, and Trump says, "Hey, I have a First Amendment right to speak about, you know, my case." And frankly, the whole Jan. Six case is was really about Trump's free speech rights. And and similarly, Sam Bankman Fried has alleged or argued in court that you know his leaking of these documents was his free speech right that he can talk about the case. So it was actually an interesting legal question being in court on on Friday of last week, where you had prosecutors alleging that. Basically, you don't have the right to, like, leak discovery documents. And Sam magman Freed arguing that he does have a free speech right to speak about why he's innocent. And where is the line between speaking your truth and witness intimidation? <laughs> that was sort of the core legal question. And ultimately, the judge agreed with prosecutors that this was not just, like, Sam tweeting about how, it, mm-hmm. how he's sad, right? It, it, was, it was something beyond that.
1: Yeah, the line might also be that Trump uh, is a former president, and this has never happened before on that level. Whereas Sam Bankman-Fried, if guilty, <laughs> is uh, one in a long line of white-collar criminals, If again, if proven guilty. So, Teddy, in the courtroom, his parents were there. I don't know if his friends were there. I mean, it, it's because he likes the media so much, like, you, he probably made eye contact with you at some point. Like, he knows you yeah. in your face. What was it like in there in that moment? And then also, what's the jail he's being held at?
0: Sure. So from the moment I arrived in in, uh, Lower Manhattan for this case, I saw his parents were there. And yes, his parents have not been at every hearing. You know, there have been like maybe four or five hearings by this point. Mm -hmm. But his parents understood, you know, because they're law professors. But frankly, anybody, you know, understood that this could be the last time they see Sam for quite a while, right? That the judge might rule then and there to send this guy to jail right then. Like it was... Mm -hmm. You know, there was also a possibility the judge would wait a couple of weeks or days before making the ruling. But in the courtroom, I was I kind of had one eye on Sam and one eye on his parents the whole time. Mm-hmm. You know, watching his parents reaction was, was fascinating. You know, there's this sense that, like, they are being gazed upon. Right. All these reporters are there watching them. I'm sure it's very uncomfortable. And like, you know, you're being gazed upon. So you're sort of like I, I was curious to kind of see how they would. Feel or, or react to being like watched like Barbara freed Sam's mom had her sunglasses on for a lot of not during the actual court proceeding, but just while well around the courthouse inside presumably to kind of evade detection from paparazzi and you know, she during uh, halfway through the case or the hearing when it became clear that the judge was at least skeptical of Sam's arguments like I saw her her head in her hands like almost the entire time and you know, if she, if she was conscious about being gazed upon, she didn't care because, you know, she was very emotional. And as soon as Sam was sentenced to go to jail immediately, I, I, you know, she tried to approach him and had to kind of be not physically restrained, but like restrained by court security and by the U.S. Marshals. Like she was a mom who didn't want to see her mm-hmm. son go to jail. So it, it was very emotional. It was very dramatic, like, you know, just to see the ankle monitor kind of beneath the suit pants. And, mm-hmm. you know, Sam was had a kind of a blank stare his entire time. He was fidgeting with Post-its, like a, a stack of Post-its. He was kind of flipping through them like you're flipping through a book. Mm. And ultimately, it's this the reason why I think like so many... This is an obvious point, but the reason why so many like plays and books are written about courtrooms is it's like this dramatic scene of where you have two sides. And I was struck by the fact that like Sam, who is usually this guy brimming with confidence, is sort of like a, like a non-playable character in this fight between these two sides where like he doesn't know anything about any of this stuff, even though he thinks he does. Uh, and he can't really do anything about it. Right. And, and you know, he's, he's powerless. So I, w- I was taken aback as, as I was watching the hearing. and It was certainly full of drama.
1: What's the state of play on the trial itself? It seems like Caroline Ellison will probably testify against him. Yeah, uh, another one of his ex-partners, Ryan Salem, uh, sounds like he's going to plea out and maybe testify against him. I mean,
0: mm-hmm.
1: it's hard to play pundit around a trial, <laughs> but no, like but it, it, yeah. it feels like the walls are like
0: closing in on this guy. You know, no pun intended. Sure, you know, I think any. Odds maker here would say it is likely than not that Sam goes to prison at least for some time. By the way, Peter I, I neglected to answer your previous question as of now He's being held at, mm-hmm. at a courthouse in Brooklyn There was some talk in the trial about whether or not he's gonna be transferred to a place in Putnam County the question is whether or not he can prepare for his case adequately without reliable internet access and that's mm-hmm. what part of the uh, the case here, but you know mm-hmm. He's gonna be in, in jail until October the trial begins October uh, October 2nd, I believe and The feds are expected to roll out a new superseding indictment uh, later this week, which is going to have a little bit more detail on some of the charges. Probably that that may already be out by the time you're listening to this recording. But the state of play is, um, yeah, I mean, Sam is going to be arguing essentially that he was neglectful and bad at business and, you know, didn't uh, appropriately consider risk, but that he was not a criminal who was trying to defraud customers and investors. You know, he's going to argue, I presume that Carolyn Ellison is of subject of suspect credibility, mm-hmm. but with every new cooperating witness, obviously, Carolyn's, you know, it becomes less of a he said, she said with Carolyn and Sam, if you have more and more people who are agreeing, I'll be very curious to see, you know, what the defense's witnesses look like. Um, I imagine Sam will, will testify. I just can't imagine him not wanting to testify or not believing he can talk his way out of this should go for a couple weeks you know there's the possibility of a second trial i'll I'll spare all the legal arcana there but there's possibility of a second trial on some other charges early Mm -hmm. next year but you know i think we should know by the end of the year whether or not sam is seems to be going to jail all
1: right teddy thanks for your reporting man be well you bet when we come back julia alexander is here to talk about bob Iger's challenges at disney
2: Welcome back, everybody. I'm Ben Landy here with Julia Alexander. Thanks for being here.
3: Thank you for having me.
2: Julia, we've been talking a lot recently on this program and at POC about all the ways that Bob Iger is in trouble right now, that Disney is in trouble right now. He basically hung a for sale sign on ABC. There's this sort of head-scratching deal with a third-tier gambling company that Iger put together with ESPN. But you've been doing all kinds of research on the streaming side. So first of all, let's talk about some of the top-line items that came out of the Disney earnings call last week, Disney Plus lost about half a billion dollars last quarter on streaming, and it also lost some subs. Do you see any silver linings in the data there at all?
3: I would say that the half a billion they lost was actually smaller. It was a smaller deficit than I think we've been used to on these Disney calls when we're going back to the Bob Chapek era of losses on the Disney streaming side, which is what led in part to Bob Iger coming back. And I would say... With the millions of subscribers, you know, I think it was about 11 million, maybe just under 12 million subscribers that Disney lost on the Disney Plus side. Those subscribers were coming from India mainly. And I remember saying when Disney was adding all of these subscribers from the Totstar platform in India, that the average revenue per user, the ARPU on these customers made it so that they weren't really meaningful ads to the company. When you look at the revenue bottom line, they were really just kind of scaling for the sake of scaling, which was streaming strategy circa 2016, right? It's what we rewarded Netflix for. And in a region like India, which Amazon and Netflix have been racing to penetrate, it seemed like a good idea for Disney. So Disney brought a lot of these customers in and they lost these customers because they decided to really not partake in a lot of the auctioning for the rights of the Indian Premier League, which is cricket, a cricket organization. And I think when we look at the loss of it, where the ARPU is just under 60 cents kind of per customer, it's not a material loss. So it's actually a benefit for Disney that their deficit is smaller than a lot of us were kind of maybe expecting to see. And also the customers that they are losing are not in high ARPU regions.
2: Got it. Okay. So the the losses are not as bad as the headline number suggests. But Iger also did say that he wants to cut back on spending. You know, They're losing $500 million a quarter. They want to get that number down. Eventually, they want to get to profitability. He has said that getting spending under control means they're going to produce fewer movies, fewer TV shows. He also is going to be raising prices for streaming. I think the the, the first price hike kicks in this fall. From the outside, that kind of sounds like a lose-lose for consumers. So what does he do to actually get more subscribers
3: overall, or or is that not his focus right now? His main focus is looking at the customers that he does have across Disney Plus and Hulu and to an extent extent ESPN Plus, but really on that Disney Plus front. And what he's done and the team has done smartly is when they increased prices, I believe it was last year at this point, they looked at the data and what they realized is even with the increase in prices, they had very, very low churn. So they weren't seeing a lot of customers cancel. Now, if you think about this anecdotally, that makes a ton of sense. Netflix, for example, is a general entertainment platform. It appeals to a lot of people, but that means that you have to keep those people constantly, those different taste clusters of consumers, we call them, constantly engaged, constantly feeling like they have something more. That takes a lot of work, takes a lot of investment. If you look at the Disney, again, even anecdotally, think of people in your life. If you look at the Disney Plus subscriber profile, it tends to be people in their mid-20s or in their 30s who likes Marvel and Star Wars. Or it's families who have kids and they want to watch Bluey or you know Elsa or whatever it might be. And so if you think about it, if you increase the prices a little bit, those audiences aren't going to go anywhere else because they can't get that content anywhere else. You could argue on the kids' front that we're now seeing very strong competition from YouTube. We're seeing strong competition from Netflix. And that's an area that Disney is actually actively trying to work on, which feels ironic because they are the Disney company, that you know preschool and kids is where they have to focus. But the Marvel and Star Wars and Pixar, like fans, they're going to continue paying for it because they want access to it. So what this data has told Bob Iger and his team is that we can continue increasing the prices. We're going to basically aggressively monetize the customers we do have instead of trying to scale beyond the customers that we think we need to have in order to compete with Netflix. And so what he's saying is if we can reach these profit margins by just increasing the level of average revenue per user we're bringing in per these customers at this 48, 50, 55 million subscriber threshold in the United States and about 58, maybe you know, 59, 60 in the next couple of years, maybe even the next year, year and a half globally. What he's saying is if we can do this in higher regions, we're actually going to get to a point of profitability without having to worry about getting to that 100 million subscriber mark. And so that's where he's really going to focus over the next, I would say, 24 months before the idea of scaling beyond that core base. Because again, that core base also means once you saturate it and once you hit saturation in certain markets, it's really hard to grow beyond them. That's when he can start worrying about worrying about scaling again.
2: Julia, isn't that also a danger for Disney, though, that they have this reliance on Star Wars and and Marvel? I mean, obviously, these are incredible franchises. They still generate a huge amount of money. They have some of the most rabid fans in the entire world. But, you know, the, the consumer sentiment around both of these franchises has been decreasing. Arguably, the quality of the most recent Marvel movies has gone down. Some of the Marvel TV shows have not done particularly well. The most recent Star Wars movie was kind of a flop critically, even if it still generated a huge amount of money. I mean, is there a franchise fatigue issue?
3: So I've been talking about this with a lot of other analysts and a lot of insiders, and this is my genuine concern. I think a lot of Disney watchers, so not people who watch Disney movies, but people who watch the company, pay attention to a couple of core businesses. They pay attention to parks, which has always done very well. They pay attention to this kind of top line, bottom line, which you would as a person who watches the company. What we pay attention less to is the actual content, which feels ironic with a content company. But there's been this continuous decrease in the kind of audience sentiment around a lot of Disney's big, big franchises. The Pixar movies have not done well at the box office, and it almost feels like they've been relegated to this video on demand type IP generator, which for Disney is a huge issue when you look at that young consumer base. A sentiment for Marvel, when you look at the Disney Plus series, has decreased with every new show. Picking up slightly with Secret Invasion, which was the one that just came out, but compared to the overall film franchise has been decreasing. And then on the film franchise itself, if you look at CinemaScore, which is a a, a company that kind of examines audience sentiment for films, the sentiment decreased between phase one. So that's like 2008 to 2012, that first Iron Man to Avengers, compared to phase four, phase five, which is Ant-Man and the Wasp and the Quantumania, kind of Black Widow, Shang-Chi, that era of, of film. Sentiment has actually gone way down for audiences. To your point about Star Wars, some of the most recent Star Wars series on Disney Plus have been some of their worst performing within that franchise. And if you look at the films, we haven't had a new film since 2019. And that film was the worst, uh, Rise of Skywalker, was the worst performing film within that trilogy. Now let's be clear, worst performing films still generated more than a billion dollars. Like this is a problem that any other company would love to have on their hands. But if you're Disney and you're saying, These are our core franchises. Now your question is, okay, well, they're decreasing sentiment-wise, audiences are cyclical, they pick up on something else, they go somewhere else, they come back. Superheroes are a part of this, sci-fi is a part of this. If audiences are going elsewhere, the big question people should be asking is, well, how about all the other content that Disney bought? They spent 6 billion, right, back then, or they said they were gonna invest six, $7 billion in, in original content, if you look at some of these shows, actually, we looked at the average, according to Parrot Analytics data where I work, we looked at the average demand for the Disney original programming series that existed outside of Star Wars and Marvel. And they averaged 15 times less average demand than Marvel and Star Wars series, which just means that no one's really watching a lot of these programs on Disney+. Plus. A lot of these original programs aren't making the Nielsen top 10 lists, And in fact, in 2022, one of the only kind of big non-Star Wars, non-Marvel shows to make the 2022 top 15 list for Nielsen was The Simpsons, which is a long running series they acquired from Fox. And so I think there's this really strong concern on the Disney plus side that the original content is not really bringing in new audiences or keeping current audiences captivated. And that's a big value proposition problem if you're Disney.
2: Yeah, you wrote yesterday that Disney, not only do they need new originals that, are, that can be hits, but they need new franchises too, besides just Marvel and Star Wars. If this is going to be a sustainable business over the next, not just the next couple of years, but the next couple of decades, the next century... Of course, you can't just snap your fingers and create a new franchise. I mean, all of Disney's biggest, most important IP over the last decade or so is IP that they bought. I mean, credit to them for doing a huge amount to turn those brands into financial juggernauts. But, you know, they, they bought Marvel. They bought Star Wars. They bought Pixar We have seen close to zero new successful franchises that have been launched in the streaming era on TV, possibly with the exception of Stranger Things. Do you think that's something that Disney can snap their fingers and engineer a new franchise or is this going to be a real tough lift for them?
3: Yeah, I mean, even if you look at their competitors, right, you can argue that NBC Universal has had one big new franchise in the last few years, and that was Super Mario, which is also its own big franchise, beloved across the world already. And so I think with Disney, this idea of how hard is it to create, not just a franchise out of streaming, but at the box office as well, right? Like theatrically, how do we go out and create a franchise? My two-pronged answer to this, part of my hope is that as Disney figures out who, and it's probably someone in private equity, comes and buys ABC and FX and a lot of the linear channels, as they bring in that revenue and they pour some of it into streaming, I'm hoping that they do pour some of it into acquiring new IP. It doesn't have to be marvel size, doesn't have to be Star wars size, but finding those did those content creating companies that are doing some really interesting work that can fit within the Disney world and then building up from there. It's something they've always done really well at with Marvel and Lucasfilm and Pixar. The other side of this equation is that a lot of franchises or properties that are born to potentially be franchises feel like throwing spaghetti at the wall, right? So I compared it to to Jupiter's Legacy, which was this $200 million dud from Netflix that felt like it should be something people like because it looked like something people usually like. It was a superhero show, it was flashy, and so therefore people should like it. And they didn't because that doesn't really matter. We're in an oversaturated content. Scarcity ceases to exist in streaming. Everything is infinite because you're now competing with the internet. And that means that the quality has to be 50 times better than it ever was because people watch TikTok or YouTube and or play video games and get the exact same level of enjoyment they'll get out of a TV show or movie. And so if you're Disney and you're really trying to hone in this prestige brand that can do these groundbreaking, you know, almost um, cerebral storytelling, then you have to figure out what your audience is really interested. In. What are they spending their time doing elsewhere? What are the new types of franchises, new types of IP that are just coming onto the scene now? You know, a big part of that's going to be gaming, right? Like we look at a lot of gaming IP, look at a lot of where those audiences are going, Disney getting involved with that in some capacity is going to help them set up to be a franchise maker of the future instead of hoping that Marvel and Star Wars, which already have cracks in their bases, are going to hold up that Cinderella castle for the next 20 years.
2: Yeah, well, you know, if if Bob Iger needs a uh, a cheap franchise, he can always go to the public domain. I don't know if anyone's tried making a Dracula movie lately, but there's a couple (laughs) free ideas out there. I'm kidding, of course. Universal tried that with uh, monsters and it has been a massive dud. But best of luck to Bob Iger. He deserves all the success in the world. So uh, we're rooting for him here at Puck. Julia, thanks as always for joining us. This was fun.
3: Thank you for having me.
2: Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance.